I missed the last uh, two weeks. I had sick kids, and then Christy and I were able to get away for our anniversary. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that saying, it's, there's no place like home. I, I love being home. And uh, if you looked at your bulletin this morning or opened up your uh, weekly COC email, uh, you, you might be expecting coup up here. Uh, alas, I am not coup. Uh, so if you came to hear him, my apologize, apologies, you can uh, come back another Sunday. But he couldn't be here this morning, so I get to fill in in the pulpit. That's one of the benefits of expository preaching is that we're just going through a passage. And so uh, the, the sermon is not dependent upon one man, but it's the word of God and, and his word will go forth. So thank you for allowing me to, to be here and, and to open God's word for us this morning. So let's now give our attention to the study of God's word. If you're uh, new here at COC or if you've missed uh, some Sundays in the past, we've embarked uh, upon our uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount study. And we're going to be finishing up chapter 5 this morning. And in this, this first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus lay out the characteristics of a kingdom citizen. See, it, it, Jesus is laying out what does it take or what does it look like or what, what does a Christian uh, look like? What are, what are the characteristics? And we find that in the Beatitudes in verses 1 through 12, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And Jesus in those 12 verses makes this progression from the heart relationship between you and God and, and uh, to our relationship in our spiritual lives to, and then to our relationship with a hostile world, and so if you do find yourself blessed, if you're blessed, if you have that settled satisfaction within your soul, knowing that you bring nothing to the table and you mourn over your sin, and if you're pure, uh, pursuing purity in heart and taking the gospel to the world, then you are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You will be comforted. You will be satisfied. And then Jesus moves on in chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, and he introduces the body of his sermon. He lays out the implications of having a relationship with the Father. And, and you are going to be, if you do have a relationship with the Father, you are going to be radically different. You will stand out in this world like a sore thumb, but in a good way. Right? Jesus says, you are salt of this world. You're salt in a tasteless world. You bring preservation to a world that is rotting away. You are light in the darkness. You are a city set on a hill, a lamp upon a stand. And all for one purpose, one sole purpose. So that the world would see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And then Jesus, moving on in chapter 5, gives us the format for the rest of the chapter. He's going to be covering the law and the proper interpretation of it. But first we had to understand the law's proper place and function in a believer's life. You see that in verses 17 through 20. So see, we don't, uh, we don't keep the law to gain any righteousness before the Father, but we keep the law because Christ has become the fulfillment of the totality of the law. Because he has saved us, now we obey out of a heart that loves Christ, not out of obligation. And so the rest of chapter 5, as we move through it, there's six examples, six real life uh, scenarios, how the law intersects with life. And, and, and we, you can, uh, we noted as we went through it that you can identify 
the, the, the six sections uh, based on one phrase. And Jesus says, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. And now he's saying, I say to you. And the formula is all the same all throughout chapter 5. Here's the law. Here's what God said. And then here's how you guys uh, misinterpreted it. And here's how to properly interpret it. And here's the uh, implications of the right interpretation of Scripture. And this is what we've covered so far. Uh, Five of the six um, examples. We covered anger and murder, lust and adultery. Marriage and divorce, promises and oaths, revenge and charity. And if you remember back, if you think back, the whole purpose of the law, what was God, when he even gave the law back in the Old Testament, what was he after? What was God after? And what does Jesus want even now as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount? It's the heart. It's all about the heart. And so this morning... Jesus gives his sixth and final example in chapter five of the law and obedience and what it means. And I really think he saved the hardest for last because it's very difficult. And at the end of this, you might feel like you got beat up. I sure did. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48. This is Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. You have, heard it, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray. God, this is some difficult things to hear. I pray that as we study your word, that you would show us marvelous things from it. God, I thank you for being perfect. As we can see that this is something that points us to Christ. And so I pray that today in our study and the rest of this morning, our focus would be upon Christ, his work, and his glory. Give us a good morning together, soften our hearts and open our ears to your word. Amen. This morning, we're going to see that if we are going to take our Christian life seriously, then it will affect and it will reflect in the way that we treat non-believers. And if we're honest with ourselves, by the end of this morning, you might be embarrassed as we examine this passage. See, we who are Christians, we who love the Lord, when we read these verses, and if you really scrutinize your heart, you might look more like the religious leaders that are watching Jesus say these things rather than the meek and humble Christ follower. These religious leaders, uh, they weren't concerned about the truth, but only twisting God's word to satisfy their own pursuits. 
And I would say that one of the biggest reasons that we are not more effective in evangelism or even being concerned with the lost or even living above reproach to an onlooking world is that so many people around us, we just do not love. We do not care about them. We're not, to, we are not compelled to think of others as more important than ourselves. So we take passages like Philippians chapter 2, and it's all about humility and, and how that's reflected in Christ and what he did. He said, in Philippians 2, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we take a verse like that, Philippians chapter 2, and we, we try to justify it and we narrow it down to, to fit just, just small categories uh, in our life. You know, yeah, I, you know, I should think of my wife as more important than myself. Yeah, I, sh- I should think of my brother or my sister as more important than myself. But surely there has to be some limitation on that, right? Do I have to love everyone that way? You know, not that... Not the drunk neighbor that I have down the road. I don't need to love him. Not the kid who consistently bullies me at school. Certainly, I don't have to consider his needs as more important than myself. Certainly, I don't have to uh, consider that homosexual at work as more important than myself, do I? There must be a limiter. But oftentimes we fail to remember this, the simplest of Bible verses that says and explains that's not how God treats us. Romans 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what license do we have as believers to treat people any other way or limit our love for them? Let's look back at our passage here. These religious leaders, they could have uh, given you chapter and verse when Jesus starts saying this, right? You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor. And all the, all the religious leaders are like, yep, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. That's, that's where it is. They'd be pointing back to it. You shall love your neighbor. And you can picture it, all right? All of them nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I love my neighbor. Only if he's a Jew, though. And that's how they defined it, right? You change the definitions of words, you can make anything fit what you want. They defined, the religious leaders defined uh, their neighbor so narrowly uh, that they would say, yeah, yeah, I, I should love my Jewish neighbor better. You know, it would be like us if, if we were interpreting that the same way the religious leaders were interpreting it. We would say, you know, Love only Christians. Yeah, it's good to love your neighbor, but only love your Christian neighbors. Or even worse, because if you look at the, the uh, Judaism at the time in that culture, there was such division, division there was such sex, there were such uh, 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 schisms that, that it was so um, uh, God-dishonoring, really, that if we were to say it, it would be like rich Christians only love rich Christians or White Christians only love white Christians. But that's not the heart of the Old Testament. Yeah, Jewish people, they knew. They knew they were supposed to care for one another. And the the law, the Old Testament law, accounts for that. 
right? You know, if, if uh, you read the scriptures, you know, if, if uh, Moshe's sheep came down the road into Benjamin's pasture, Benjamin ought to care for his neighbor and take his sheep back to him, right? That's common sense, and that's what scripture has laid out. But what about your enemy? What about your enemy? Exodus chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. You can jot it down. This is, what, this is what God says about how you're to treat your enemy. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who, you, uh, who hates you lying helplessly under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release him. So there's no excuse There's no excuse for the religious leaders of Jesus' day to not know how to treat their neighbors. But by the time we get to Jesus, they have distorted God's word and the, the original command so much that they would take any chance or any excuse they could to take their own sin and just run with it. And then you look at the verse, you can see the tag that they uh, put on the end. It wasn't good enough to just um, uh, love your enemy, but they added on, and or, love your neighbor, I'm sorry, uh, but hate your enemy. And boy, did they hate their enemies. It had gotten so bad, and the Jewish leaders of the time were so racist and and hateful towards Gentiles that they wouldn't save one if one was drowning. That's written down. You can go look it up. If you were a Gentile, they wouldn't talk to you. They wouldn't eat with you. They wouldn't sit with you. They wouldn't do business with you. They would rather walk a longer route to get to their destination rather than walking through your town, right? You, you know the, the story, the familiar story, Good Samaritan, right? You, they're, they're trying everything to avoid someone who was not Jewish. And it would be an insult to a Jew to even get a Gentile's city dust on their sandals. And so what does Jesus do here in our passage? Jesus so perfectly speaks with sharpness, and precision like a scalpel. And he comes right in the middle of their thinking. He walks right through it and he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That would have been a good time if there was a soundtrack to have the vinyl record come to a scratching halt. Wait, what? Love your enemies? Love your enemies. This is the command of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount for anyone who's going to claim to be a faithful kingdom citizen. This command is for anyone who claims faith in Jesus Christ. This command shows the believer's love is not exclusive, but it's inclusive. That there's no category, there's no group of individuals to whom uh, you would say, you know, I'll go up to this point with my love, but not anything further. I'm done here. In fact, the extent of it is not only to show love, but to pray. But to pray. If you notice here, it says, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus isn't saying only pray for those who persecute you, but he's just simply taking a category of people and he's saying that you should pray for them regardless of how they treat you. Pray for them. Notice he doesn't say pray about them. You know, God, please strike them dead. 
<laughs> no. But those types of prayers do happen in the Psalms. They're imprecatory Psalms. And, and it, uh, you come and you read them and you're like, man, what do I do with these things? What do I do? First of all, if you read those imprecatory Psalms, it, you have to understand those, those prayers, they, they didn't come from selfish motivations. They had God's glory as their focus and God's glory alone. And in that sole pursuit of that mission of God's glory in those prayers, they still had to examine and evaluate their own hearts and their own lives, even as they're praying judgment upon their enemies. Imprecatory prayer was a serious concern about the sin that uh, was witnessed, but it not any sort of uh, personal vendetta of those who are uh, praying those psalms. But Jesus confronts this limited love that the religious elite were teaching the people and instead commands an unlimited love. I mean, imagine this. Just imagine. Imagine Jesus walking in the middle of the race riots of the civil rights era where blacks and whites hated each other. Imagine Jesus walking through the middle of German forces in World War II, telling them to love their enemy, telling them to no longer kill Jews, to no longer assassinate people who are not a part of the race that they wanted to breed with. This is exactly the same type of love that Jesus is calling us to. He says here that you should love your enemies. You should pray for those who persecute you. And then look, he gives us some examples uh, to, to follow here. And here's some compelling reasons. I have three reasons why, are we, why we are to love without limits. We'll have three reasons why we are to love without limits. First off, the reason why we are to love without limits is because it makes us like God. It doesn't make us God. It makes us like God. It identifies us with our Father. And you see that in verse 45. You can look at it. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, because, for this reason, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's just a Hebrew way of saying that you will be like your heavenly Father. And you see it again at the end in uh, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Verses like that must point us to Christ because we fall short every day, even this morning. And this is not saying, excuse me, (coughs) this is not saying, uh, verse 48, it's not saying, you're going to have to work to earn your salvation. Instead, this is an opportunity to demonstrate, to, to, uh, to demonstrate the proof of your salvation. And so practical question as we're working through this, how do you treat your enemies? How do you treat people that you not only just don't spend time with, but you just don't like them? In fact, when you see them or hear about them, You're not upset if something bad happened to them. How do you treat those people? One Puritan writer, Thomas Brooks, he says, to return evil for evil is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. 
And that's exactly what Christ is commanding here. Something that is truly divine. And there's a true demonstration of a changed life which says, I will not only love the people who love me, but I will love the people who have no intention and no desire to love me. In fact, they hate me. So you have to understand how significant Jesus' words were to the first century church. I mean, if someone uh, today thinks that you're a Christian or you tell someone that you are a Christian, you know, their outlet for their hatred towards you might just be uh, them not talking to you or, or calling you a name. You know, they might call you a name behind your back. They might think that you're arrogant, right? Because you know the only way. But the truth is, they're really not going to do that much to you. And I don't want to downplay it, but it's not common in our setting to see headlines that say, you know, two Christians beat up by uh, a gang at Costco because they're witnessing to people. Like that doesn't, that's, that's not happening. But it did happen in the first century church. It was the norm then. If you identified yourself as a Christian, it immediately marked you as being separate from the entire world. If you identified yourself as a Christian, there was a significant reality that you had to know that you could be murdered for your faith. You'd be beaten or stoned. And it only takes a quick reading of the book of Acts to see that. You were cut off from your family. You were cut off socially. You were cut off economically. And you can understand it, right? People in general do not like hearing the fact that they are sinners. In fact... You have Nero, who comes to power in Rome, and you know, he was taking people like you and like I, professing Christians, and he's taking them, putting them on stakes, putting tar on their body and lighting them on fire just to light the streets at night. Jesus is saying, pray for those who persecute you. I want you to see the gravity of what Jesus is commanding you and I to do. Just even recalling that story, it's a little embarrassing. You know, the, the level of disdain that the, the world uh, gives us or the level of hatred from the world, our level of persecution here in Santa Clarita seems so relatively tiny. And I wish I had some good stories to tell that I could say with Peter, you know, I thank God that he considered me worthy for, to suffer for his sake. But these people in the first century church, they suffered regularly and in, in beyond in the coming centuries, and not only in the United States, but all over currently, Christians are suffering. And Christ said to them, as he lays out to us, listen for your enemies, uh, uh, pray, pray for your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. You're to love them because this identifies you to them as being owned by your heavenly father. It shows that you worship a God, one like they have never known, because no one else will teach like that. We quoted, I think Fred quoted John 3.16. We know it, right? We know it well. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
And there are a lot of reasons that can be given as to why the father sent his son. Uh, One of them, one of the reasons is love. We sang about love all morning, Danny. Thank you. But what does John 3.16 say? Does it say, for God so loved only those in the world in which he was going to love him back? No. The world couldn't love him. I mean, we, we know, we, we study scriptures, we know we are sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and unless God gives us an ability to love him, we have no capacity to return love back to him. And so God loves the unlovely. And we are commanded to do the exact same thing. So we are to love without limits because it identifies us with the Father. The second reason why we are to love without limits is that it distinguishes us from the world. When we love without limits, it distinguishes us from the world. Look at verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Here's the bottom line. If you only love people who you love, you're no different than the world. As a Christian, that's an insult. Right? I mean, it's, it's just an insult to say you're just like a Gentile. And in this context, a Gentile is someone who did not know God, someone who did not worship the Lord, the one true God. And really, right, anyone can love people who love them back. I mean, my wife, for example, is easy to love. Very easy to love. And many of you love her. She's awesome. What one reason she loves me back, right? It's easy. It it goes back and forth. But there there are people in this world that I confess to you that it's hard for me to love. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Because I want to justify my disdain for them because of their sin. I want to justify my reasoning to not love them back. And so how are we to love a sinful world? The world often takes uh, very quick notes of when Christians wrong them. And unfortunately, it's, it's embarrassing when, you know, when Christians are not loving people. You know, the world will remember every little interaction you've had with them. Maybe when you had sharp words or a judgmental attitude or were prideful or arrogant or you were avoiding them. This does not mean that we turn a blind eye towards the world's sin when we talk with unbelievers. Right? Sin is not okay or acceptable according to the scriptures. But how we treat a person in their sinfulness is a big determiner as to whether we are loving them or we are judging them. And so we look at this passage here. We understand that the second reason of why we are to love without limits is because we want to separate and we want to be removed from the world. I mean, look at verse 46, right? Look at it again. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Tax collectors. 
Why is it so significant that Jesus, is, Jesus uses this group of people first? Basically, tax collectors were the most hated of the Jewish society. Just to remind you, crash course on tax collectors. Uh, tax season is here upon us. But uh, tax collectors, they, they were people who didn't have a group. They were outcasts. They only hung out with other tax collectors. And in this context, context, again, uh, these are Jewish people who are tax collectors. This would be um, Jewish people who, in the eyes of other Jewish people, had dishonored Jews by working for the Romans who were ruling over them, all the while collecting tax from the Jews to give to the Romans. And so the, the Jewish people think, man, that tax collector, that Jewish tax collector is an absolute traitor. I can't believe you'd serve these people who are oppressing us and ruling over us in our own land. And the Romans have come in and to make things worse, you go work for them. And then by working for them, you're stealing from me. And what, you know what the cherry on the, the cherry on top of the Sunday is? Do you remember how tax collectors make their money? They make up their own tax rates. So if I were a tax collector, and this month I needed to get the $100 from you for your taxes for the month, the Romans are going to expect me to give them $100 from your family. But what if the kids needed new shoes, or uh, my pool needed to be replastered? What would I do? I'd simply tell you that your tax bill is $150, and I'd keep what I didn't give to the Romans. And so do that, multiplied by each person in a town and the surrounding area, and tax collectors would be wealthy, sneaky, but wealthy. And so people weren't too fond of that, to say the least, and they were hated because of it. And people could not understand, they could not believe that Jesus would choose to hang out with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. That's why it's so significant. I mean, the outcasts, right? The absolute rejects of the society. These people were hated. And what does Jesus say? What's his point here? He says, you religious leaders are no better than the tax collectors. Even the tax collectors love their own friends. So when he says this, even the tax collectors do, do this, the religious leaders are probably looking at each other, shaking their heads, saying, man, why do you have to mention tax collectors? I hate those people. And Jesus put them side by side, the most despicable people in their society at the time, the religious leaders and tax collectors. And Jesus says, yep, that's right. Because that's about as good as you get when it comes to only loving people who are just like yourself. What an absolute embarrassment for the religious leaders to be labeled that way. And yet, he says, this is exactly how they loved. And so as a review, we've seen the reasons to love without limits. First off, it makes us like God. And secondly, loving without limits distinguishes us from the world. And I just add a third reason why where we are to love without limits is because we want to be consistent with the gospel message. Why do I say that? 
You don't have to turn there, but I'll read from Romans chapter 13. It's a very familiar passage um, for us, Romans uh, 13, verse 8 through 10. It says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, understand that when we became Christians, for those of us here this morning who are Christians, when we became Christians, we were liberated from the power of sin. Meaning before then, we didn't have the ability not to sin. We'd always turn to sin. Sin, sin, sin. That's what non-Christians do. That's where we have been. And that's what we're really good at was sinning. But for the first time in our life, it's like a return back to the Garden of Eden when we're given the opportunity to actually choose the tree or not. Actually to be put in a position in which we have the opportunity to be freed from the power of sin. The second thing we've been freed from is the penalty of sin. We're no more going to be judged by God and going to hell consequences have been transferred to someone else. None of that is going to happen. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the thing also is important here is we have the ability not only um, not to do wrong, but we have the ability now to do what is right. To love in a way that's represent, uh, representative of how God loves us. I'll look back at Matthew chapter 5 verse 45 to see how God's love is represented here. God's love is so kind that he gives this example. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is saying in this passage, God allows the sun to rise up and to shine on and to give light to and to allow crops to grow and rain to come and the water cycle to happen, not just on people who fear him and love him, but on people who do not. That's what theologians call common grace. Common grace. Marriage, for example, is another Uh, is another example of common grace, right? God allows non-Christians, just like Christians, to get married. And marriage is specifically a gift from God. I would say um, a pleasure. Pleasure is another common grace in in general, pleasure in general. You know, think about it. If, if, If we're allowed to find pleasure in anything, just the fact that we can find pleasure is a gift from God. Unfortunately, though, Non-believers do not find pleasure in doing what is godly. They find pleasure in doing what is ungodly. But God still allows for pleasure. There are many things in which God shows generally a love for his people. 
And if it's common grace for us, what then is the special grace? It's that he loved us enough to save us. To give us the ability to have faith in him, to see ourselves as sinners and to respond. And so why do we love our enemies? Why should we love our neighbors? Why, Literally our neighbors, our next door, literally our friends, the people in our neighborhood, on our campuses, in our communities. Why should we love them? Because we are demonstrating not only God's general love for everyone, but we're demonstrating the special grace and love of God in our lives as believers. Because only Christians are capable of that kind of love. Only Christians are capable of loving people that the rest of the world would choose not to love. So I challenge you, lovingly, Let's take inventory this morning. Start to think if you haven't started already. Grab a pen. Write this down. I don't see anyone taking out a pen. That's okay. Listen back to the recording. Who are people in my life that I have a hard time loving? Who are the people in my life that I have a hard time loving? Another question. Who are the people that are in your life or not that if you were asked to would have a hard time loving? If you put somebody in your life, what type of, what kind of person, a certain look or a certain background or a certain behavior If they were in your life, would you have a hard time loving them? Who would that be? Now, as you write those questions down, I want you to take those questions and think about them tonight, this afternoon, this week. Who in your life is hard to love? And then ask this question, do I pray for them? When was the last time you prayed for those people? Either the people that are in your life right now that you have a hard time to love or the people that aren't in your life, but if you put them there, it would be hard to love them. When was the last time I prayed for those people? And I would submit to you, church, you will rarely find a person who's praying for someone and it ends up being that person who hates them. It's almost next to impossible to pray sincerely and biblically and lovingly and Christ-honoring prayer for someone with a maintained hatred in your heart towards someone. Because when you go before God himself, he will convict you of the reality of your lack of love for people. I think that one of the things that needs to compel us to be faithful in evangelism is the fact that you would want the other person to be able to love you enough to tell you the truth. But listen, you're in reality the one who knows the truth. So you want to be loving towards them enough to tell them the truth. You want to love them enough to have a conversation with them in such a way that they know that you love them. 
And then maybe when they would want to talk about more meaningful things or spiritual things, they would come and talk to you because you've already shown them the love of God. Do you know what Christians are really good at? Christians are really good at insulating ourselves. Insulating ourselves from non-Christians. And sometimes there's, there's good reason for that, right? We want to be careful not to identify ourselves with the world. You know, we want to be careful to not fall victim to the world's temptations. You know, we want to be careful in maintaining relationships within the church and the body of Christ to encourage one another, building each other up, etc. But if we do that to the point that we neglect our mission field and we neglect to be faithful to evangelize, and we neglect to be faithful to love people, then all we are doing is sinning. We're insulating ourselves from the world. Statistically, the longer a person is a Christian, the more years you are a believer, the less likely you are to know non-Christians and to evangelize them. Let me ask then, how long have you been a Christian? And for those of you who are, when is the last time that you shared your faith with somebody? Why? Why that long? Is it because you don't love them? Because you're not compelled to? Because you do not care for them? And I think those are the types of questions that we must ask ourselves when we go through a passage like this and and strive to be obedient to what Christ commands us. As we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and live a life that says in humility, my life is changed because of the gospel. God loved me when I was not worthy to be loved. So may I love others, not because of their worth or what they can give me, but because I'm commanded to offer others uh, to live my life in sacrifice by my words and by my actions and my thoughts that I would not judge them and think so poorly about them, but be compelled to love them. And so may God give us the opportunity to love them. That we would love them enough to tell them the gospel. That is the ultimate demonstration of our love for them, is it not? That needs to be our testimony and our ministry. That needs to be your testimony and ministry as a Christian. And if it's not, you join the Pharisee club. You love those who love you and you hate those who don't. May God have mercy on us if that is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we looked into the pages of Scripture and we confess that it is like a burning coal that's pictured in the book of Isaiah, brought to our lips and it burns. It burns, but it purifies. Lord, perhaps this morning you've convicted many here of their lack of love for others. God, I would pray that you would show them hope and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, the Savior. That in this very example and the life that he lived here on earth and by this very instruction that we can follow in his footsteps. 
Father, you have loved us before we loved you. You loved us so much that you gave your only son to die on a cross and take our place so that we might be forgiven if we put our faith and trust in him. God, help us as a community of Christians, Church of the Canyons, to live like we are indeed redeemed, changed, and transformed. That we might no longer live as citizens of this world, but love you first and foremost. We long to honor you. So, Father, replace our sin with obedience. Transform our thoughts. Change our actions. That even in the coming days ahead, you would give us the opportunities to be faced with these people that are already in our life and that we don't love. God, that you would put people in our life that we would never think about. Give us the opportunity to love the lost. Give us conversations. Put us in situations, Lord, where it might be able, where we might be able to practice what Christ has preached. And show-